if you would, open your Bibles, Isaiah. And let's begin in chapter number seven. We're actually going to be a couple different places in the book of Isaiah, but I want to start out in chapter seven so you can understand uh, why I decided to come to this passage. We've been over the last um, several weeks going through the book of Acts. Um, and the book of Acts is just this incredible story of the early church. Onward and upward. That's the direction they're following Jesus and, and God's receiving the glory for the work that's being done. And it's just this incredible story throughout the book of Acts. And so we made it through about chapter to the beginning of chapter number nine over the last um, few weeks. And so now as we come to the Christmas season, we're just going to push pause on that for a minute. And then we're going to jump into a couple of different passages um, this month as we focus on Jesus Christ, as we look at his birth, as we celebrate these things. But today, before we get into all of that, I wanted to take a look at this book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a fascinating um, book of the Bible. In fact, in my mind, it's one of the most unique books of the Bible, one of the most interesting books of the Bible. Um, sometimes it can be one of the most complicated books of the Bible. But here's what's incredible to me about Isaiah. Isaiah is, if you wanted to think of how to characterize the, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is the Old Testament gospel. The Old Testament gospel. You say, okay, define that. Nay, what do you mean by that? Um, in the Bible, there are four books that we call gospels. That word gospel simply means good news. And we would articulate those as being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of those four books tells us the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Two of them include stories of Jesus' birth, Matthew and Luke. These four books, though, in their whole and individually, tell us the story of Jesus, how Jesus came, how he lived a sinless life, and yet how he went to the cross to die for you and for me. Those are the gospels, the good news of Jesus. Isaiah was written about 750 years before any of those books. And so hundreds of years before they were written, Hundreds of years before, the, before Jesus was even born to Mary on that first Christmas, Isaiah, the prophet, is hearing from God and recording these prophecies of stuff that wouldn't even happen in his lifetime or his children's lifetime or his grandchildren or his great-grandchildren. Generations later, these things would come to pass. And so as Isaiah is writing, though, he's looking to and he's hearing from God who is revealing to him stuff that would come down the road. How incredible. And so I want to take a minute. I want to look at just a couple of sections of Isaiah. And I really want to camp out in chapter number 53. As we look at the book of Isaiah, what we're going to find is we're going to find um, most of the genre that we're looking at today is going to be what's called um, prophetic literature or apocalyptic literature, something is being revealed to the people that are witnessing and hearing these things. And so as we get into this, I want you to keep in mind, this is why the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus had to be born and to come and dwell amongst sinful people like you and me. 
Isaiah chapter number seven is this interesting account. Um, the most famous verse within this, and we'll read it together in just a moment, is verse number 14. But this really interesting thing is taking place. Um, God is speaking through Isaiah. Uh, he's speaking specifically here to Ahaz. Um, Ahaz is the king in this time. He's the king of the nation of Judah. And he's saying, I'm going to do these things do you need a sign that this is actually going to take place the way I'm telling you? And Ahaz is going, oh, no, 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 God, oh, no, I trust you, God. And, and God's like, why do you got to be this way? Okay, fine, I'll send a sign. I'm going to pick what it is. Um, and what we find is in chapter number, I'm sorry, verse number 14 of chapter number seven, this uh, one of the most famous verses in all of the scripture, specifically in Isaiah, we find written, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He's saying, you don't want to pick a sign. I'll show you a sign. <laughs> Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. That's a name that we hear more often around Christmas time. We hear it in the carols. In fact, one of my favorite carols, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And this word Emmanuel is a fascinating word. It means God with us, God with us. And in fact, Matthew chapter number one, Matthew, the apostle of Jesus, the follower of Jesus, he tells the people that he's writing to, he says, this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's words. Jesus, he is that Emmanuel. He is God with his people. How incredible, how amazing is all of that? But this prophecy is given hundreds of years before. This is spoken hundreds of years before Jesus would ever be born. As you flip over just a page or two, depending on the way that your Bible's laid out, chapter number nine, we find as this is continuing, as this, these prophecies continue to pour out uh, for the things that are going to come to pass, Isaiah records for us in verse number six, he says unto for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And to this point, to this point, um, these prophecies could maybe be interpreted to say, oh, well, who knows who he's speaking of? This could be about anyone or about anything, but, but watch as these prophecies continue, they get more and more specific to the things that are taking place and things that are going to take place through Jesus. Because watch what he says next. Not just the government's upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, all right, those are lofty. Mighty God. Any of your parents name you Mighty God? Any of you know someone who thinks their parents name? I'm just, okay, all right, stop right there. Uh, no, this isn't referring to you or to me. This is This is speaking of someone that's, well above you or I. This is a title that was used for God himself. In fact, this uh, phrase here, El Gabor, the mighty God. Speaking of the strength and the power of God himself. Now, if that's not enough, what does he say? He says, everlasting father. None of us are everlasting. And this child's going to be called the everlasting father? How is that even possible? Unless... This child is equal with the father. Unless this child is 
also God. Now watch as he continues. He says, he says, the prince of peace, the one who came to bring peace of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we find these strong words. We find this prophetic statement once again unfolding in Isaiah's book, in this Old Testament gospel. But contrary to what we've seen so far, the story of the Savior is not a story of what you and I may view as ease or even success. As we look at these prophecies so far, we would say, wow, that's incredible. That's exciting. Uh, everything here, it's up and to the right. It's, it's going to accomplish these great things. And yes, surely he would and he did and he will. But what we also see is that this son this one who would be called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God and Prince of Peace. He was actually coming for a life of suffering, a life of hardships, a life of difficulty, a life that you or I would not be envious of in any way, shape, or form. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to move towards the back of Isaiah's book, Isaiah 53 specifically. <clears throat> and this is, um, if you were with us a couple, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this passage very briefly when we were in Acts chapter number eight. Because in Acts chapter number eight, we find an Ethiopian man reading through this passage. And really this passage begins in chapter 52 and goes all the way through um, chapter number, well, it really goes on and on and on for chapters and chapters and chapters, goes all the way nearly to the end of Isaiah's book before finally finding its end near the end of chapter 66, the final chapter. Today, though, I want to look at chapter 53 specifically. As we approach this text, as we approach this passage of the Word of God, we're going to see some really fascinating things. First, what we're going to find is we're going to find the same son, the same one that we be called all of these uplifting and encouraging things. We're going to find that he was not... Uh, being offered to being given a life of ease or comfort. We're going to find instead a life of hardship. Well, we're going to find a lot of expectations that maybe you or I would have based on those first earlier verses. We're going to find them being turned upside down with what God's actually going to do. And so we're going to see verse after verse after verse, how God's plan is so different from the plans that you and I would often dream up or think up. Let's begin, as is appropriate, at the beginning. Verse number one of chapter 53. And on your own, I would encourage you to go back through and study the rest of this just incredible uh, prophecy as it's just being spoken, as it's so poetically recorded and given to us and preserved for us even still to this day. Verse 1, who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord 
been revealed. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. As we study this chapter this morning, we're going to notice a few observations about what we're going to call Jesus' incarnation. Incarnation. Now, that's a, it's a big word. It's a theological word. Here's what it means. Jesus being made flesh. As we look at this passage, one of the things that's important for us to remember is that Jesus didn't come into existence on Christmas Day. He existed for eternity. In fact, John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that same Word in verse 14 of John chapter 1, he says, was made flesh. He became flesh. Not he became or he existed, he became flesh. And so the same Jesus here that we are lifting up on Christmas Day, his birth, his coming as a little infant on this Christmas Day, that's not the beginning of Jesus. That's merely the beginning of his time on earth in a human body with us. But he existed long before that, in fact, eternally, even before that moment. And so as we read this thing, as we see this, as we look at these verses, we see this one that like a plant, like a root out of dry ground. But you know what's so unexpected about the way that this Messiah would come? Look look at verse number two. As he describes him this way, like a young plant, you and I, as we see a young plant, we probably don't give it much thought, do we, depending on where it's at. Where it's growing, this is something that seems so small and seems so insignificant, which is why here in verse 1, we see who has believed what he has heard from us? Who's listening? This is something that he's going to come in, and who's going to actually pay attention to this message? Because as Jesus would come into the earth, he would do so in such a way that those who were looking for majesty and glory in an outward and a self-gratifying way, they would be severely disappointed. Because as we would see later, this Messiah's coming was in the most humble of places, in a small town, not even in the town, outside of the small town, in a place reserved for livestock. This is where God would do his work. We see this humble beginning, but really what we see here in this opening, the first observation that we notice in this opening paragraph is we see the suffering, the suffering of the Messiah. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by man. In fact, it calls him this, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. And so when we look at the characteristics of the chosen one of God, the one that he sent to be the sacrifice for our sins, we see that he is one that people want nothing to do with him. You know, the incredible things of Jesus' life, 
And what we find in the New Testament, we find these prophecies being fulfilled over and over and over again. As Jesus came and as he lived in this earth, we can think of times that crowds, they just flocked to Jesus, right? You say, how is it that he's a man of sorrows? How is it he's acquainted with grief? (coughs) Excuse me. They flocked him. There were crowds that gathered. And yes, there were these times that crowds just thronged to Jesus. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And then I want you to remember what happened when Jesus didn't do things the way that they wanted him to do them. Because as we enter the third year of Jesus' ministry, what happens? The people who said, yes, this is the Christ. Yes, he is coming. Yes, he's going to do all these things that were foretold. They weren't thinking of Isaiah 53. They didn't have this passage in their mind. They just wanted the everlasting kingdom back in chapter number nine. Hey, let's build it up. Let's set it up. Let's go. But then chapter 53 comes along. And then what do we see? We see he's a man of sorrows. Think of that final week of Jesus' life. He enters into Jerusalem and crowds are coming and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us, save us. And then just days later, days later, not months, not weeks, not years, days later, they're crying out, we want Barabbas. They're crying out, crucify him. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This last week of Jesus' life on this earth, He goes to the garden, and what does he do? He prays, God, take this away from me. God, if there's any other way. Nevertheless, if it's your will, your will be done, not mine. Luke tells us that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, anguish, the grief that Jesus endures on our behalf. And what does it say that people did? How do people respond to him? They said, as one, he was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. What was that? What's that talking about? As he's suffering, as he's enduring in these most difficult of days, how did people respond to him? Where were those crowds? Where were those who had just days before said, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna? Where were even the 12 that for years had lived with and followed and been near him. Where were they? Well, nearly all of them, by the time the crucifixion comes, there's only one that's even around. He was despised, rejected. We see the suffering of the Savior. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Verse number four, why is he enduring this? Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. So why did he go to the cross? Was it because of his own sinfulness, his own wrongdoing, his own grief, his own anything? No. It was for ours. He took our grief. He took our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And in those early days... As Jesus is enduring this, what happened over and over again? As they struck him, they said, hey, if you're the son of God, tell us. They mocked him. They said, God wants nothing to do with you. And yet, as he was pierced, 
In verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. As he was crushed, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so what we find is we find there's this one that our transgressions, that word transgressions, it means our wrongdoings. The times that we violate God's law, Jesus took that on himself. We find the, the iniquities. The iniquities are the times that uh, we're confused, that we're bent, that we go against what God has called us to and designed us for. What do we see? He took it on himself. He took it on himself. Well, how was he able to? Why would he take these things on himself? Jesus had no sin. As he comes into this, Jesus, he's not dying because of his wrongdoing, because there wasn't any. There, there was no sin that he could die as a result of. But he willingly took our sin on himself. How do we respond to this? Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Hmm. We have turned everyone to his own way. What do we find here? We find that we are like sheep. Sheep, um, if I can put this bluntly, sheep are dumb. If you're one of my kids, you say you just used a bad word. Um, sheep are dumb. They are not smart. They do dumb things. They ignore the shepherd at times. They wander. Aren't we like sheep? Aren't we like sheep? No, just one of us, all of us, we are like sheep. We get our own ideas in our minds and we say, God, this has to be the way that you are going. And so we go that way. Only to find what? wait a minute, the shepherd's over there and I'm over here. I have transgressed, committed iniquity, if you want to use the words here in Isaiah 53. And so we find that there is this separation from what God is calling the people to do and what God is calling us to do and what we actually do. And this gulf, this, this thing, this, this separation, this wrongdoing, it's called our sin, or in verse number six, our iniquity. And the Lord has taken and laid our wanderings, our sinfulness, our iniquity, and laid it on him. You see, that iniquity, that sin, Paul would write later in the book of Romans, chapter number six, that sin deserves death. That sin deserves condemnation. That sin deserves separation from God. And what we find here is that the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Why? Jesus suffered so we can be saved. You and I deserve what we get for our sin. Justice is us getting what we 
earned through our wrongdoing. And yet Jesus steps in. Because what do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about God? Even in the Old Testament, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy is what I want, and mercy is what is being demonstrated here as Jesus suffers so that we can be saved. And I want you to notice this. I, I just think this is fascinating. I'm not going to camp out on it today, although I could preach a whole message just on like the verbs of this passage. But watch what it says here. Verse number uh, six, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wait a second. Is this being written before, during, after Jesus' time on this earth? Before, and yet it says he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This isn't, understand with God how these things work. With God, his saying and his doing are inseparable. He does not make promises that he will not keep. He is incapable of doing so. And so here as he speaks, as he lays this out, he says, Lord, he's already laid on him our iniquity. Verse 7, keep watching. He was oppressed. <clears throat> Notice here, I think this is just fascinating. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. See, so far we've seen the suffering. We've seen the saving. Now watch as we observe, <coughs> excuse me, the silence. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And so what do we find? We find that here he's afflicted. He's oppressed. That word oppressed means he's forced to do work. He's in captivity. But this is not a captivity that he earned or he deserved. It was one that he submitted himself to. He was afflicted. It means afflicted. It means to be, to be wretched, to be emaciated, to, be, to suffer violence. Afflicted. But even as he's enduring all of these things, you know what never came out of Jesus' mouth? I don't deserve this. But did Jesus deserve this? No. If anyone could say, I don't deserve this, wouldn't it be Jesus himself? And yet, what does he say? Not that. In fact, he says nothing. As he is taken, as he is led as a sheep, he, he, he does nothing. He doesn't even open his mouth. And then he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression, the sin of his people. And even in the middle of this, who considered that he was cut off? Who considered that he was cut off? Who missed him? Who mourned for him as he was crucified and hanging on that cross? The nation had no remorse, no regret. They took him and they betrayed innocence. 
And they continued on as if it was just another day. And what we find is this was so beautifully kept. This promise, this prophecy, even as this is being written, so accurately describes the way that Jesus gave himself for us. You see, Jesus not only suffered for us so that we could be saved, but he suffered silently. You think, you ever feel like you're, you ever feel like you are in the place that no one sees? You ever feel like you're, you're where no one knows the good that you're doing or what you're walking through, or, or maybe you're, just, you're so far outside of the spotlight? This is Jesus, the Son of God. This is one that literal angels went as messengers for his birth. This is one that had thousands that flocked to him as he did miracles and as he taught. And now no one even misses him when he's gone. He suffered in silence. And even so much so that in verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked his death on the cross between two thieves, two people that deserved the death that they were getting, dying among the wicked, and then being buried in a tomb belonging to another man, being buried in a place that was not even his own, this rich man being fulfilled hundreds of years later in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. Although this man had done no violence, There was no deceit in his mouth. We see that he suffered silently. But you know what we really see painted throughout this entire passage? We see the sovereignty. The sovereignty of God in all of this. From the very beginning, God drew up this plan. God knew this was what was going to take place. He was aware. He was not surprised. And Jesus himself He was not uh, under any pretenses that he was going to come and live any different life than what we see playing out in this passage and later fulfilled. Why? Verse number 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Sometimes when we think of God, we think of the heavenly grandfather that only ever wants to give us candy and goodies and and these things that uh, we desire. Reconcile that with this verse. It was the will of God to crush him. You see, God desired this work happening in Jesus. Now, Now, understand with me. Is this because God is just some cruel, sadistic, deity that only desires pain and wants these things? No, 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 no. Understand with me. God desired this because he knew the good that would come out of it. Watch. Verse number, verse number 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering to guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Satisfied with what? What offspring is he going to see that will prolong his days? How is he going to prosper? 
by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Through this suffering, what does he say? Make, he will make many to be accounted righteous. See, we understand our sinfulness as we reject God's laws, as we violate them, as we break them. It separates us from God. We are debtors in sin and we can never repay it. Without Christ, as God looks at us, he sees a sinful human being, one that has fallen short of his glory, one that has violated his law, one that has rejected and attempted to live in our own righteousness, which doesn't exist. But as Jesus came, Jesus was sinless all throughout. Jesus never once committed sin, never once did anything except that which pleased the Father. Over and over and over again, he was righteous, he was righteous, he was righteous. And so what we find is we have our accounts, sinful, wicked, indebted, wretched, his account, righteous, sinless, perfect. But what does he do? See, that penalty for our sin, that payment for our sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse number 23. But the gift of God is G through Jesus Christ is what? Eternal life. Forgiveness for this sin. And so what did he come to do? He came to clear our accounts. He came to wipe away our sin debt. Well, how did he do that? Through his sinless life and his willing death for us. And so what we find is at the end of this story, even though it involves the anguish, involves the crushing, involves the grief of suffering, he suffered so that we don't have to. He suffered so that we may be forgiven. He took our iniquity and our sin, and he brought it on himself. And that's why we see that he'd make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. That's our iniquities and our sin. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions, transgressors. Excuse me. So what do we see? Understand with me that Jesus came to carry out the Father's plan. Jesus came to carry out the Father's plan. You see, God saw our sinfulness. God knew our wickedness. He was there. And he devised, he planned, he sought out us. So much so that he sent his son Jesus and so even throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, as we watch the people pushing back against God and pushing back against God and pushing back against God, we find God pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and pursuing over and over and over again. Throughout all of this, he's working out a plan to make us righteous. Throughout all of this, he, he is moving towards the goal, the salvation 
of sinners through the work of Jesus for God's glory. And so what do we find over and over again? That Jesus came to carry out the Father's plan. You see, he was an offering, an offering of one, an offering for guilt, a sacrifice, a death because of guilt, but not his guilt, ours, benefiting many. And in fact, what does it call, what does it call those who are the recipients of this grace? I want you to look here, verse number 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. The fruit of those that come out of his work. You see, we have this beautiful privilege. In the middle of all of this plan, we find ourselves the condemned sinners. We find Jesus, the righteous sacrifice. We find the Father, the one who is orchestrating this, the one who is laying out this plan that Jesus is continuing in. And Jesus is, he even says that he submitted himself to the Father in this thing, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Excuse me. But understand with me, Jesus came to die for your sin. Jesus came to die for your sin. As we look at Jesus' life over these next several weeks, we're going to look at, we're going to examine, we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus, the new life uh, that we celebrate at Christmas, this, this one wrapped in swaddling clothes, coming down this really humble form, this humble way, taking flesh on himself. But as we look at this, as we examine this, we have to keep in our minds and we have to remember why. Why? Why did he come? Why was he born taking on flesh? Why did he go to the cross taking on our sins? So that you and I may be saved. You see, we're the recipients of this goodness and this grace. We have been blessed beyond measure. We have been given this thing that we could never repay. We could never uh, give back. We could never accomplish. We have been given this gift of grace. Salvation that's offered only through Jesus Christ. How do we become his offspring? How do we become children of God? Going back to John chapter number one. Centuries later, John, a follower of Jesus, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, he writes this gospel, this good news. And what does he say? He says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. You want to be a child of God? How do we, how do we become children of God? Is it by just cleaning ourselves up? By changing the outside? By behaving in a certain way? No. By receiving this gift of Jesus Christ, the suffering Son of God who came to die on your behalf. This morning, we're stepping into a time that we call an invitation. I'm going to pray in just a moment and, and, and we'll begin this, but, but here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to hear.
you're sitting in this room today. I believe that every time the Word of God is opened, it's our responsibility to respond to the Word of God. Now understand, that looks different for every individual in here. The Word of God is not just, there's not a singular response to this. And so depending on who you are and depending on how you've already made decisions to follow Jesus in your life, God's working in different ways. And the desire of myself, the desire, I believe, of God is that you would respond to the word as it's heard. And so this morning, that could look a few different ways. In a moment, we'll be inviting you to stand and to join us in singing. And we're going to lift our voices in song. But maybe God's working in your heart. In this Christmas season, you need to really embrace and understand and remember not just the, the, the fluff and the happiness and the joy, but really remember and focus on the work that God has done for you on your behalf. Maybe you need to take a minute and you need to just re-examine your daily understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, we never outgrow the good news of Jesus. If you're a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, the gospel is that foundation but it's also, our, it's also the building itself. It's the thing that the scriptures revolve around. And so we can't misunderstand and say, oh, well, I've heard this all before. Good. Hear it again and again and again. I love that old hymn that says, tell me the story of Jesus. Right on my heart, every word. Over and over again, that same story repeated for us so that we may better understand and appreciate what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. But really the final response today is as we're entering into this Christmas season, maybe you've heard this message of Jesus and you have actually never received him. Because what does John say? John says, as many as received him to them, gave you power to become the sons of God. Maybe you've heard the gospel and the good news of Jesus, but you've never actually received this gift. I encourage you today, receive the gift of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not complicated. It's believing the gospel. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter number 10, that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, that God has raised from the dead, you shall be saved. What a beautiful thing. And so today, maybe you're sitting in here and you've never received Jesus. I would love to have a conversation with you. Or maybe introduce you to someone else who would open the Bible. We'd love to show you how today you can receive him and you can believe in his name for your salvation. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you work in our lives. I thank you for the way that you sent your son, Jesus, to die for our sins. We're so undeserving. We, we have no merit by which we can gain our own salvation. We are the wicked. We are the outcasts. We are the ones that are far from you. And yet you sent Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Today, Lord, I thank you for the gift of Jesus. I thank you that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. The, the suffering, the, 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 the agony, the one that I deserved. Lord, we praise you. 
because this was something we could never accomplish on our own. And so today we give you the praise, the glory, the honor. You're the only one worthy of it. And Father, today, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that we would respond to this message as you would have us to. I pray that you would help those of us who have put our faith in Jesus to embrace the gospel even more strongly today than we did yesterday. I pray that you would help us to grow and mature in our understanding of the work that you've done for us and that you desire to do through us to make disciples among all peoples. And then, Lord, I pray today for the ones who are in here that have never received Jesus. I ask that you would work in their hearts, show them, help them to understand that without Christ, they are far from you. That their sin only leads to condemnation, to death, not only a physical death, but a spiritual death, an eternal condemnation in a place the scriptures call hell. Lord, I pray that you would help them to understand the severity of the decision to reject the work of Jesus. And I pray that you would help them today work in their hearts, draw them to yourselves. And I pray that you would give them the courage and the boldness to embrace Jesus and believe in him even this morning. So Father, I pray that you would do the work that your word went out to accomplish in us. We pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.